Welcome, listeners, new and familiar. It's time for your Wool Shift Dust, a Silo TV podcast, Episode 9 Breakdown. If you're a fan of the dystopic sci-fi thriller from Apple TV Plus that teaches you there's nothing scarier than a cleaning, then you're in the right place. We're your hosts, Alicia Brenner, repping the book readers, and Luke Middup, repping the show watchers, and our resident political historian. This week, we'll be getting into The Getaway, the penultimate episode of season one. This is your official spoiler warning. We will be discussing episode nine of Silo and everything leading up to it, and I will be discussing the equivalent part of the books. But don't worry, I won't be spoiling any of the twists and turns to come. We haven't seen the finale, and I'm selfishly enjoying all the non-reader theories from Luke and others. Too much to spoil any of the twists and reveals I expect next week or beyond. Not to mention that uh, with the adaptation changes, there's a good chance that all my theories are wrong anyway. Um, Luke, what did you think of this week's episode? I really enjoyed this week's episode. I thought it was an incredibly tightly written episode. There wasn't a moment wasted. It really did move the plot along. I think we found a lot out about a lot. Um, and also they, they rectified something from the previous episode, which is Judicial and the Janitors seem to have like, in the, 30 se- in the 10 seconds between one episode ending and the next one starting, they seem to have a sit-down and a performance evaluation, and everybody's <laughs> at the top of their game this episode. I guess, yeah, I guess um, the angrier Simsnard gets, the, you know, the more the puppets play their yeah. game. Yeah, I'm quite happy with this, with this episode, too. Um, it was, again, a big one for character building and pulling the pieces together. So there wa- weren't a bunch of, like, new reveals, uh, but we see everything being lined up for, like, a, a domino effect to of reveals in the finale. So I'm excited for that. And, yeah, pretty much every character featured in this episode was amazing and memorable. So I'm a very happy Silo fan right now. Yeah, and it sounds like people who are watching the show are, are getting really hooked to this story. I ran a very unofficial Twitter poll this past week. And um, of the insignificantly small group of respondents, um, definitely not a scientific study. Uh, But yeah, and again, from the silo of Twitter, but we got 89.5% of the respondents are actually watching the show. And of those, 20% have read or are currently reading the books and a whopping 53% plan to read the books as soon as the finale airs. Um, Not a surprise, Luke, I guess. No, I mean, I mean, I kind of can't read the books because no, we're, planning on, we're planning on keeping this dynamic going for as long as the show goes. But as soon as the show ends and we've recorded our final uh, Wool Shift Dust, I do mean to read the books at some point. Yeah, well, I mean, I can I can vouch that you wanted to read the books even before, and I I said uh, no, <laughs> please don't. Yeah, so and like obviously we've still got the one episode to go, um, right. But this has been an incredibly strong and an incredibly consistent series for all the the nitpicking um, um, I've maybe done at a point. Right. Well, I mean, nothing's perfect. Well, I think a lot of people like this week's episode. So let's get into what's got everyone so excited after a quick commercial break. Your regularly scheduled breakdown will begin in three, two, one. Okay, the ninth episode of Silo was called The Getaway, and that's a pretty good two-word summary of the plot, uh, with, of course, plenty of twists along the way. Uh, It was again directed by Emmy Award winner Adam Bernstein, who also directed last week's episode, but this time it was written by award-winning playwright and screenwriter Lakeithia Dalko, who she's also on the writing staff for the upcoming Marvel show Armor Wars. I'm a big Marvel fan too, so I'm even more intrigued after this introduction to her work. 
And yeah, I've just got to say that I'm loving also how this series is like pairing filmmakers with massive resumes like Bernstein with up and coming talents like Dalco. So I, I think this is how you both make sure that your stories stay fresh and also make sure that you're nurturing the talent and giving them the experience that'll help them win their own Emmys so that they can nurture more upcoming talent in the future. And yes, please keep the talent train rolling. Yeah, I mean, people don't often talk about producers except to criticize them, but I think Graham Yost, um, Remy Arbuchon, um, Hugh Howie, Rebecca Ferguson, and the other producers are doing a really good job of, like you say, pairing experience, either pairing experienced directors with slightly less experienced writers or the other way around. Right. Um, and I think that that's, that really is something that, that more shows should do. I think it's, it's obviously important for like television as a whole to have a, to have a, a talent pool of people that they're bringing through yeah. um, and giving experience to. And obviously it makes sense to, to pair that with, with experience in other departments wherever you can. So I think that's really, that's really um, sharp show running actually. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. All right, let's hop into this episode, like where Juliet Rebecca Ferguson escape plan. Now, Juliet lands two or three levels down on one of the landing that connects the central staircase with the levels around it. So you basically called it Luke. Um, just no sprained ankle, even. Yeah, she got she got right up. Yeah, she got the wind knocked out of her for a second, but yeah. then yeah, just limps a few steps and is ready to go. I mean, I suppose with all the adrenaline running and kind of yeah. the, the urgency of the situation, that's, yeah, that was probably what would happen. I guess maybe her doctor parents made sure she took her calcium supplements growing up. So good for her. Yeah. Um, yeah. And since uh, Sims, Common and company, they opted to take the slow way down the stairs like suckers. They uh, opted out of the jewel shortcut. So that gives Juliet enough time to disappear off into level 23, somewhere into the mix of passages and gaps. And yeah, she just manages to squeeze off camera, but she will turn up later and she will turn up hard. For now, though, the whole neighborhood is out like looky looing about what's going on. So the word is definitely out that the sheriff's on the run. And Billings, Chinaza Uche, he's there. He's looking like a mouse next to the Lion of Sims. Uh, Billings wants to ask real nicely that everyone please be orderly and respectful. Uh, but I don't think Sims is respecting him too much right now. What do you think about the dynamic between these two characters this episode? Yeah, I mean, I think Sims is just caught up in the moment of trying to find Juliet, whereas Billings is actually being kind of the responsible party. We don't want any innocent bystanders right. um, getting caught up in this. I don't think in that moment Sims cares at all about uh, innocent bystanders. No. I mean, I, th I think we find out a lot about Billings and Sims separately in this episode. I'm not sure we find out too much more about their dynamic vis-a-vis um, -vis each other. Yeah, pretty much it comes down to this. And then, uh, yeah, in the next scene with Bernard, we see that Sim seems to have suspected that Billings let her get away. So I don't know. It doesn't sound like he knows about the syndrome, which I'm actually kind of surprised about. Um, yeah. Especially since we found out this week that it's something Billings has had since childhood. Yeah, that does, I mean, Billings has done his best throughout the series to hide it. But Juliet got there within like two minutes of meeting Billings. So right. it is kind of weird that Sim's wouldn't have noticed this, wouldn't have cottoned onto this, having worked with Billings for what we can assume is several years, for what might be several years. And there's no way that they would consider, you know, positioning him as they have, as, you know, as as the next sheriff by the end of, by this episode. 
um, if they hadn't vetted him first with some cameras in his apartment. Yeah, so it seemed, I mean, because I was going to say maybe Sims is just hiding it from Bernard, but surely Bernard has watched that footage as well. So yeah. this does seem like a bit of a plot hole, to be honest. Well, I mean, I'm like I said, I'm not going to call anything a plot hole until we see it isn't closed, but it's something that I'm curious about and I hope that they address. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so we behind closed doors with Sims, like uh, Bernard's Mr. Nice Guy facade from Tim Robbins is completely gone, though I have to say he's still much nicer to Sims than he is in the book. So yeah, there's a passage from the book I look forward to reading, but once we get past a a couple certain plot twists, uh, maybe next week, maybe next season, but I can reveal that the first time we meet Sims in the book, Bernard is just like brutal to him. Um, but Sims is completely nonplussed, which actually kind of adds like a more likable quality to that version of the character. Although I, I think they've obviously added a lot more depth in this TV show version. Um, anyway, and we finally get a moment in the scene that I've been dying to see since we saw it in the trailers. The glowing key fob with the number 18 on it. It's lying on Bernard's desk. And then flashes red and buzzes like, you know, your table's ready at Applebee's. (laughs) What do you think this is and why do you think it's going off? Yeah, that was a very lost season two moment, you know, where they're having to reset the counter every so often and the thing starts buzzing and the alarm goes off. Okay. I wondered whether the 18 meant that that referred to this as silo number 18 Mm -hmm. and whether there is like some overarching authority basically buzzing Bernard saying you know get your shit in order or we'll come and do it for you basically um and yeah it's like Bernard is seriously shook when that thing goes off and it's I presume he's wondering it wandering around with it in his pocket the whole time I mean I guess yeah this is the first time we've seen it um but yeah it's interesting yeah I mean it's nice from you know a cinematic perspective they put it on the desk They made sure that we could see it with the nice red light and the buzzing and the 18 like in your face. So, yeah, they they want us to notice it and they wanted us to not notice it before. Um, I I think knowing this show and suspecting as I do what it might be, uh, I think we're going to find we're going to at least see it in action next week. That's my prediction. Oh, so it's a thing that does something, is it? Well, I mean, it's even if it just hangs on a tree, that's a thing that does something. It exists for a purpose. <laughs> He's going to get his Applebee order. So. He's going to turn it in and uh, the same takeout's going to bring him more bacon. He's going to get his nachos and an order of wings. And some uh, John's liquor takeout, yeah. <laughs> Yes, and like in that scene, you can you can tell like the Bernard is seriously worried. You know, this thing doesn't go off; isn't meant to go off. It's very very bad when it does go off. Mm. Um, and clearly, it seems to be counting down towards something. You oh, you think that that's what the flashing and buzzing is? I took it that way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. Well, hopefully, we find out next week, and I can tell you the feedback section is rampant with theories about this. So okay. Yeah, whatever's going on, though, Bernard has no interest in talking to Sims about it. And yeah, the show goes back to making sure that my eyes get regularly irrigated with uh, one of the two contenders for most moving scene of this episode. Uh, Surprising, I'm sure no one who follows this podcast, my vision did get a little misty during uh, both the scenes with Billings talking about his experience growing up. And yeah, and then, of course, later with Jules and George. Uh, Luke. You were moved by Martha's struggle with agoraphobia last week. Were there any scenes this time that touched you in the same way? Yeah, exactly. The, those those exact two. For, in different ways and for different reasons. But yeah, I'm so glad that George 
wasn't using Juliet or yeah, at least or, not in the end anyway. At least not in the end. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it still leaves a complexity with him, but uh, you know, yeah. you, your heart heals a little for her at least. Um, but yeah, for now it's, uh, it's getting harder for Billings to hide the syndrome symptoms physically and mentally. But when he talks about just telling people, his wife is like, okay, enough of that crazy talk. And he's like, nah, you know, I never would because there was that time in school when I beat the shit out of another kid at school because he also had the syndrome and wanted to bond over it. And yeah, Billings, he just wanted so desperately to be normal that he wanted to show everyone that he he wasn't like that kid to show that he hates different too, just like all the cool kids. Uh, did this story change your opinion of Billings at all? Um, No, and I mean, I don't want to get overly personal here but i have i have a great deal of empathy for what billings is saying and what billings is going through and i can certainly i can certainly as i put some thought into how i was going to say this before we start the podcast i can certainly as a wheelchair user empathize with where billings is coming from in that careful calculation that society requires you to make between your own ambitions and what your capabilities are and sort of what is the social aspect of a condition a disability an illness and what is the actual physical limitation that it puts on you and how you how you negotiate that is a never-ending series of choices and compromises not just and i thought what was what was really moving about the scene is the way it was done with the interaction between him and his wife because it's not just a series of choices and compromises that you make. It's the it's the choices and compromises you have to make with the other people in your life. Hmm. And that is something that starts when you're very, very young. And it's something you get better at doing as you get on. I have found it easier to do as I get older. Okay. But yeah, when Billings is talking about hitting the boy at school, there are moments I look back on from my own sort of teenage years where I wish I'd handled them where I wish I'd handled those compromises and those choices better put it that way okay well first of all just thank you so much for you know sharing and being willing to be open about your personal experiences because I know it gives so many people more insight to you know think about things from somebody else's perspective and yeah Chinaza Uche he I, I think his delivery of this story should be his Emmy campaign reel. What a gut punch. In all seriousness, I really hope Chaz Uche is put up for something. No, I'm being serious. Yeah, I think he's acting this this series in what is not... Um, I don't know what you whether you'd even call it a supporting role, but... Um, I mean, in the books, I would, but in the show, I, I he's, he's kind of... He's very much stealing the show in many ways, yeah. Yeah, he is. Um, yeah, and, and I think that, you know, his story that he told here, this is, I think this is a real human reaction. I, I can think of other stories in film, like, for instance, reminds me a bit of American Beauty. Now, yeah, spoiler here for a movie that came out 24 years ago. Um, so there's that bit at the end where the next door neighbor, Wes Bentley's dad, he shoots Kevin Spacey's character because, yeah, Lester, Kevin Spacey's character, and being kind. Uh, he got his neighbor to let down his guard and got him to expose something about himself that he didn't want to admit and something he wanted to pretend he could just like wish away, wish different, make himself the way his society told him that he was supposed to just naturally be. And and yeah, this 
person forced him to be honest with himself for a minute and pull off that mask, pretend and admit there's something about him that might make people treat him differently, however unfair that is. And that can make a person angry and make it make them want to take it out on the person who's who's forcing them to look at that brutal reality, um, especially, as you say, like when you're younger and teens make a lot of dumb decisions. Um, yeah. So I guess what I'm saying is at least Billings didn't shoot the kid. Yeah, there is that. <laughs> And I, and I do think Billings' wife is making the essential point that this decision is not just... Right. Whatever decisions you make is not just going to affect you, Billings. It's going to mm-hmm. affect me. It's going to affect our child. You know, the one sheriff has already been sent out to clean and the other is, yeah. is a wanted fugitive. So that line where she says, you know, imagine your child growing up, imagine your daughter growing up without you, that really hits. Yeah. I'm really glad that scene wasn't done as a soliloquy by Billings. I'm really glad it it was a back and forth conversation to show that actually there's more here than what Billings wants and what Billings is feeling about the situation. Yeah, I think that line about uh, remember your daughter, that's the one that he's going to carry around in his head for the rest of the show. Um, So, yeah, so knowing as we do now that Billings has had the syndrome since childhood, do you think that's what drove him to be an overachiever with the PACS competition and everything? Oh, I... Again, speaking a little bit from personal experience, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Because when you do have a physical disability, when you are offered that opportunity to compete on a playing field where that disability is irrelevant, I I think particularly, again, when you're younger, you you seize that opportunity zealously. So, right. yeah, I thought that absolutely fitted in perfectly with his character. Yeah. Um, just to go back to the line about imagine your daughter growing up without you. Mm-hmm. I think we see that factor into the decisions Billings makes throughout this episode and probably in next week as well. I think that's that's that line absolutely stays with him. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, but his wife, you know, Caitlin Zaz, Kathleen, um, she's thinking that you know perhaps it's time he think about hanging up his deputy badge and going back to his nice desk job in judicial because the syndrome wasn't so bad for him there things were a lot easier there um are you sensing a growing rift between these two no i don't think a rift no i think that is the sort of standard argument that you know it's the kind of standard argument that i think a couple in their position would have um i also think as well that from both characters point of view they're under an unusual amount of stress. Yeah, sure. Because, again, Billings has had no opportunity to settle into the role of being deputy. This can't have been what either of them expected this job was going to be, at least not all of this at once. So, no, I don't I don't think there's going to be, like, a rift between these two characters that Simsnard can exploit, and I think it's... If one thing is clear, it's that these characters, um, you know, love each other and care for each other. I think it's just the the extreme pressure that they are both under in that in the moment. Okay, um, I'm gonna drop a a quick hot take here that I know is not gonna probably not gonna be a popular opinion, but I'm gonna be honest. Kathleen was kind of annoying me this episode. Now I understand completely where she's coming from, um, but just she was just rubbing me the wrong way. She's like. She calls him out for lying about his condition, which is fair and true. But again, she seems to just love like throwing stuff in his face and arguments. And like, I completely get she's afraid for him, afraid for their daughter. But the way she talks to him is seriously annoying me. Um, 
but yeah, I, I know that this is uh, this is probably not going to be how other people feel. Just completely personal thing. So, do you think she might end up in a situation where she has to uh, betray Bellings in order to save her daughter? Um, I think if she did end up in that situation, I think it's possible that she might do it. But I hadn't thought about that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I was just thinking more along the lines of if Simsnard like threatened the family, how they could manipulate Billings. But I don't know. Yeah, maybe they could go in the other way. Yeah. I mean, Sims just sends Billings home as well. Like, he doesn't make any pretense of involving the sheriff in the right. hunt for Juliet. He just, like, dismisses Billings and tells right. him to go home. He's like, you, he's like, you messed up. Um, just be glad I didn't throw you over a rail. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, so I have, I have another thing I was thinking about with, uh, with Kathleen and Paul. Um, so how many dates in do you think before Paul revealed he had the syndrome? And, like, how do you think that went down? That's an interesting question. Because that takes a big level of trust. Are they married? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Or they're sanctioned at least or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I sort of, I in my head, I sort of imagined it as maybe Billings told her like the night before they got sanctioned or the night before yeah. they got married just to give her, just to possibly give right. her an out. Um, okay. But Billings wouldn't have said anything until he got to the point where he was asking her to make some kind of a choice, I don't think. Okay, my headcanon is that, like, this is the only the only person he's ever really loved in that way, and he told her, like, a couple months in. That's my headcanon. Okay. So, yeah, so Paul shuts down the conversation with Kathleen with one of the lines of the episode. He says... I'm not limited by what others think I'm capable of, and I'm allowed to make mistakes. Boom. And I'm going to need that embroidered and hung up in my bathroom, please. I'm going to say, I'm <laughs> going to need that on a t-shirt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then Billing says, MacGyver time. And he grabs a wrench and heads out the door to do some detectiving. Actually, there's a lot of MacGyvering in this episode. There's that. And then there's Jules, mm -hmm. Jules does a bit of MacGyvering herself later on. When? What do you mean? When she's... um. When she's in Sims' apartment, um, and she's sort of getting the, the, the bits in the kitchen, it's like, oh. what, uh, Sims' wife goes, what are you going to do with that? And Jules goes, I've, I've, I've done more with less than I suspect you have. Yeah, she's anti-MacGyvering. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's a better way of putting it. It's the anti-MacGyver, yeah. MacGyver blocking, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, so, uh, but in the meantime, Billings heads out, and then we get our only very brief trip to the Down Deep this episode. And yeah, hopefully next week we'll be spending some more time down there. Um, but we get confirmation that Hank, uh, Billy Postlethwaite? Postlethwaite. Uh, one of these days. Uh, we <laughs> Billy Postlethwaite is definitely on Team Down Deep over Team General Law Enforcement uh, when he very begrudgingly is forced to bring what seems to be some like plainclothes raiders to Martha's uh, Harriet Walters workshop for a search. But luckily, she ain't got no shit to hide. Or so she says, because like she kind of has some questionable relics in there. No, like, I guess she really doesn't care who sees her radio, but I hope she hit that camcorder well. Yeah, I mean, Merjon seems to have given her a pass on the radio. So I wonder whether that ever got like she's got like some sort of formal certificate for that. Um, but yeah, I hope she hides stuff up. But I love Down Deep Deputy Hank, because like yeah. you say, he is giving the minimum amount of cooperation to this search that he can do without without getting fired, basically. Right. I'm sure that it's going to get back to Sims that, that the down deep deputy is not to be trusted, you know, is, is not on the team. 
So actually, even though it's a, even though it's a throwaway moment, I thought that was quite brave of Hank mm-hmm. in that moment to be quite so openly on team um, team down deep, team mechanical. Yeah, I mean, I guess he's showing if it goes down, which side he's going to be on. Yeah. All right, and then so then we cut back up to the mids to uh, Pete Nichols, Ian Glenn, who's got his pediatrician face on, comforting a mother of a baby who, yeah, the mother, Denise, played by Namisha Odedra, she's worried that her infant didn't wake up for his feeding. Now, I'm no baby doctor, nor do I have any babies of my own at this point, but this kind of sounds to me more worrying than Dr. Nichols is treating it now. I wouldn't know. Uh, yeah, I'm going to say I'm not a pediatrician, so I'm not going to speculate. But having a brother that's relatively recently had a baby, believe me, if the baby sleeps, then I don't think anybody's going to be complaining to her. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I know from friends who have gone through the new parent thing that this this scene must be very relatable because you just you just don't know what's normal or not. And you worry about every little thing because like your baby is so vulnerable, but can't express what's wrong. And like everything seems to make you feel like a bad parent, um, especially because you barely sleep for months. So yeah, I, pr- probably a pretty relatable scene for a lot of people. Though, yeah, indeed, sleeping too much is probably a problem more parents wish their newborns had. Yeah, definitely. But enter more raiders into the baby room, and they're finally ready to start asking Daddy Doctor the more direct questions about his daughter's whereabouts. But Dr. Nichols is done with letting these punks push his family around. Yeah, this scene could have happened two episodes ago. Well, no, it had to happen after he had the reconciliation with Jules, you know, and after she told him a bunch of stuff too and, you know, got him like, no, I'm done with this bullshit. I guess, but this was definitely the scene in which Daddy Dr. Nichols comes into his own. Yeah, yeah. But he had to go in the journey to the to the depths of his shame in order to come back up and be like, I'm not going to be that guy anymore. Yeah, and the, the interesting question is, what would have happened had they not had that reconciliation? Yeah. I think that the scene would have played out the same, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure Dr. Nichols would have had the, the sort of the full determination not to make the same yeah. mistake twice. I think he might have looked a little bit more like Lucas looked this week, which we'll obviously be talking about. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But just a little more like deer in the headlights. Possibly. But in this case, he's just kind of like he's he's given away all of his fucks, his field of fucks is fallow. And uh he, he's just ready and Sim swoops in and he's ready to play the role of good cop for a change. Um and he says to the other raiders, so we were speculating that they wouldn't care about waking up the baby, Sim Snard, but he says, if you wake the baby, this poor woman might kill you. So maybe we were wrong about Sims being willing <laughs> last week to turn the nursery upside down. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, so, but it does feel like like almost everything Sims says in the scene is dripping with sarcasm. So, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think he actually cares about waking babies? or? I think I think there is a good part of Sims' character, which is just he has resting sarcasm. Like, if, he's not try- if he doesn't make a conscious effort not to sound sarcastic, he sounds yeah. sarcastic. Resting sarcastic voice, yeah. Yeah, and I think that that is a nice touch actually in Common's performance because I, I think that comes from being in a world where he has to deflect a lot and where people are... The default reaction of almost everybody to Sims is to be frightened of him. Right. Um, so I think that kind of resting sarcasm is Sims's way of coping with the fact that he is pretty much universally... With the exception of his family, he's pretty much universally disliked and feared. 
Well, Marn seemed to be friendly enough until he was killed. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know where people are getting it, but <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, he does say um, he does say, which seems genuine. I remember when getting our boy to sleep was the highest achievement of the day. But yeah, Denise, the mom, definitely looks hella uncomfortable with the situation, understandably. And um, Peter's still like, yeah, no more Mr. Nice Doctor. Get to the point, Sims. And Sims tells Nichols that Juliet said she wanted to go out. And I, yeah, I don't think Dr. Nichols believed it for a second, obviously. No, I don't think he did, but I don't think it would matter even if he did at this point, to be honest. Yeah, he wouldn't want her to go out even if she wanted to. It's yeah. true. Yeah, and then Peter Nichols reminds Rob that he already lost his family 20 years ago, thanks to the judicial raiders. And he says this, I know that you were particularly touched by this one line, uh, there's a spot on the level one balcony worn smooth by all the people who have gripped it tight before going over. I never thought my wife would be one of them. Yeah, that was a really touching moment, but it did also make, like, the, the first time I heard the line, it was, oh, that's so sad. The second time I heard the line, it was like, well, why don't you build the barrier a little bit higher? Then? Like, if this is a particular <laughs> issue, why not build the barrier a little bit higher at that point? I mean, I think it's like, it's like the, the subways in Tokyo. Like, uh, when you go to Tokyo, a lot of the subways are, they have like these plastic walls over the tracks because people kept jumping in front of the trains. But then, you know, you keep building the barriers, but then people keep finding new places that don't have the barriers and people will always find a yeah, way. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, Dr. Nichols also asked Sims, if you were in my position, would you help the people hunting your child? So Sims says he would for the good of the silo, the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few and all that. Uh, and he says it with conviction, but especially given how Bernard later questions him for putting his family first. I don't think that I buy it, uh, that he would let anyone take his son. And yeah, his wife certainly would never. What do you think? I don't know the how, I don't think Sims really knows how he would react in that situation unless he was in it. Um, I think Sims believes it when he says it. Mm -hmm. But whether that means that it's true is a different thing altogether. It's not what his actions tell us, yeah. I actually thought that Sims sending an escort for his wife actually made sense even from the point of view of the wider silo because thinking it through from sims's point of view if juliet doesn't want to go outside then taking sims's wife hostage might make some sense in terms of juliet might use juliet knows about sims's family and she could potentially have used that as sort of leverage in a hostage negotiation I thought Bernard was being harsh there because I actually thought what Sims did made sense. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I don't. I think that um, Sims' actions that we see later, I think that they show us that he does not mean what he's saying here. And I think that Dr. Nichols knows that. And he tells, he tells him about Juliet. Um, she's the most important person to me, but I have no idea what she thinks and where she might go, which... He really means uh, fuck off. But also, he's not lying. He doesn't know. Um, no one, not her father, not viewers, and especially not Sims, could predict where she pops up next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so this is when we cut to Sims' wife and son, Camille and Anthony, we learned their names are this week, played by Alexandria Riley and Oscar Coleman. And they're walking home because they've closed school for the day due to the manhunt that's going on. And uh, Sims, yeah, indeed, he sent some raiders to walk his family home. 
the very move that Bernard questions later. But the family's already made it to their door and the Raiders want to go in and do a check. And this is where we see Camille go into like full mama bear mode. Um, She used to be a Raider, it turns out, and she's not putting up with any of their shenanigans. And she also knows that throwing her husband's name around will shut most people up since everyone's afraid of him. Now, Sims told Trumbull in episode five that you're not allowed to tell even your wife about your life behind the janitor's door, but based on her reactions or lack of reactions to everything that happens in the sequence, I don't know, I feel like uh, Camille knows some things. What do you think? Yeah, I don't think she knows everything, but she certainly knows something more than Sims's official job. Um, so yeah, I don't think Robert Sims has been quite living up to his own high standards. Because, yeah, she obviously knows something. Yeah, so I, I, have, I have to say that um, this is one of the two new characters that we got to spend time with this episode where I was like, Graham Yost, where have you been hiding these two all season? So <laughs> <laughs> more Camille Sims, please. Um, yeah, I keep calling Sims a lion and Camille is like definitely a panther. So knowing that Rob chose this woman as his wife kind of makes me like him more. I mean, what do you think? Because could this be a happily ever after couple in any version of this story? Well, they, they certainly seem very committed to each other, and they seem yeah. sort of very happy with each other. And it absolutely makes sense that that the only way Sims was going to meet somebody was through an office romance. Because even if even if Sims doesn't tell Camille everything, like the only way a relationship with Sims would work is if you knew at least part. Of his story, like I can't right. see, I can't see anybody in judi- anybody who wasn't working for judicial be willing to put up with the hours Sims has to keep and the, right. the sort of constant need for secrecy. Um, whereas if you are already in that world, you sort of I'm not saying you necessarily accept it, but at least you understand the rationale for it. So yeah, right. I thought I thought having Camille be an ex raider makes sense. But it's interesting that she switched to IT, uh, so I'm wondering if we're going to find out why that move was made. If she was going away from something or towards something, or... Yeah. And hopefully Anthony gets his grilled cheese sandwich after all of this, because he, deser- <laughs> he deserves it. He, he, had, a, he had a rough uh, little afternoon there. Yeah, yeah he even did. if he got off school, yeah. But yeah, though part of Camille probably wishes she let the Raiders check her apartment when she goes inside, and she sees the security camera has been smashed. And there's a deranged woman with a knife who moments later is holding her at gunpoint with her own gun, which, by the way, very interesting that she has her own gun. Um, Do you think Sims gave it to her? Do you think she borrowed it when he wasn't looking or kept it from her old job? Oh, yeah, I took it that that was like Sims' Sims' old service weapon or maybe her old service weapon that she just hadn't returned. And like she's she's talking to Juliet about do you even know how to use that? Um, Yeah. Like, Juliet is standing three feet away from you. Like, Juliet says, I think I'm standing close enough to you that it doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. No, she she can surmise that. <laughs> yeah. By the way, I also have to give props to Hair and Makeup, supervised by Laura Allen, for making the undeniably gorgeous Rebecca Ferguson look realistically, like, rough and on the run and, like, sweaty and on the edge but still undeniably gorgeous, of course. Um, I th- just think they did a good job with making these subtle makeups look natural to just convey yeah. the mental state of mind of people. Yeah, I, th- I think that was that was a really good job. Yeah, and another interesting thing from the scene was, uh, so Anthony, he made two nameplates for his parents for their desks. So those are like these metal 
little like things that you just put on the front of your desk to just, you know, say your name, like Principal Skinner or whatever. Oh, my, my parents got me one of those when I got my PhD. So I've got yeah, a exactly. to admit it one, yeah. There you go. This was the, uh, you know, metal shop version of it that your kid makes you. So it's super cute. But I did notice it was funny that the one for his dad says his full name, Robert Sims, and the one for his mom just says mommy. So <laughs> I wasn't sure whether to be like kind of insulted on Camille's behalf that her son doesn't see her as having a separate identity, <laughs> like, or or if it's like that he's just closer to his mom and sees his dad as more distant. I wasn't sure which way to take it. I think you could read that either way. Um, we were talking about the relationship between Sims and his father and Sims and his son mm-hmm. last episode. And I think you, you see a lot more of that relationship between Robert oh, Sims yeah. and Anthony oh, in yeah. this episode. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, we're going to see the son might be on the path to radicalization after the events of this episode. Thanks to Juliet. Um, Mama Sims, she shuts baby bear into his room. But he opens the door a sliver, so he sees like everything that follows, um, which actually Camille notices at some point, and she kind of like shoots him a look, like you know, look and learn. Um, and yeah, Juliet, she's there saying she doesn't want to hurt Camille, but she will if forced. And I can see why Anthony might develop a dislike of the scary lady threatening his mom. Yeah, definitely. Even Juliet says she knows she could be giving the kid nightmares, even if she doesn't shoot Camille. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, as you said, Juliet, she doesn't know how to use a gun, but she correctly surmises that at that distance, it doesn't matter. So she uh, gets Camille to cuff herself to a pipe somewhere where she can see both Juliet and the door to her son's room. And then Juliet starts like anti-MacGyvering, MacGyver blocking, clearing away everything within reach that she thinks could be used as a tool or weapon. Uh, But she doesn't get everything because it seems Juliet's not the only one who knows how to pick a lock here. Yeah, what I love about that scene is the negotiation between Camille and Juliet, because Camille knows that Juliet doesn't want to shoot her, so she actually negotiates. You know, I'm I'm not cuffing myself to the radiator because right. I'm not. I don't want to cuff myself anywhere where I can't see the door to to Anthony's room. Um, and like, I think that goes to show you for all the danger Juliet is in, for all the lines she's willing to cross. I think it shows you that Juliet is not going to shoot anybody if she doesn't absolutely have to. Um, And I think Camille picks up on that hesitancy and that's what turns that scene into a negotiation. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I think um, Camille shows that she she has a good understanding of the human psyche in this scene, for sure. Um, But Juliet, she's here for a purpose. Uh, And I, at first, I thought that she might have gone there just because it was the last place anyone would look for her. But of course, yeah, Sims does have one of the few computers that can read a drive with sysop level clearance. So that makes sense. I mean, I thought as well from Juliet's point of view, like if you want to go somewhere where the raiders might hesitate to budge the door down, right. that's a good place. So yeah, like you were saying, Camille seems like a, a real student of human nature um, on top of all of her other kick-ass qualities. And she notes that Juliet seems to have been talking from experience when she spoke about causing nightmares by, you know, someone acting violently in their home. And uh, they get to have a little chat about how raiders are terrible. And yeah, you've got to be wondering what's going on in Camille's mind in this moment. What is your interpretation of like how she's looking at Jules throughout this scene or how that might be changing? I think she's just looking for a way to to manipulate Juliet into leaving or just trying to find more information on 
Juliet's background just to level with her and to make sure that Juliet can't hurt her or Anthony. Um, I did think it was interesting that, like, when Camille pushed, like, Jules wasn't reluctant in the least to tell her story. I think she was actually quite... I think she actually found it quite cathartic to get that off her chest to somebody who had worked in judicial. I think she she sort of wanted to have that conversation with somebody from judicial for a long time. And, like, the way Juliet does it, it sounded to me like that was a speech she'd rehearsed in her head quite a bit, actually. Yeah. And, yeah, and meanwhile, while all these, like, mind games are going on, the drive is taking a maddeningly long time to load. Well, we've all been there. Relatable again. Yeah. (laughs) Why is Silo so relatable? But, yeah, once it finally opens, luckily Jules spots the word library circled on the notes from Allison. And uh, this is the word that Allison used a magnifying glass to read off the bottom of the drive in the first episode. And if you look at like this page of Allison's notes, there's some other fun Easter eggs if you pause, like Gloria and Poison are both crossed out. Same with maintenance, supply, and some numbers like 108 and what looks to be like 1811. And at the bottom, we see what was taken, what we took. So yeah, lots of intriguing stuff that could mean nothing, could be clues. But I have to say library is a pretty weak password as far as passwords go. (laughs) Yeah, it's right up there with open sesame. I mean, there's no numbers, there's no social characters. We don't, none of it seems to be in capital letters. Yes, yes, I would like to get into the drives library. Thank you very much. (laughs) That is where I'm going. (laughs) But yeah, it works. We're in. And yeah, you get some more fun Easter eggs if you pause the screen as the files scroll by. So there's one called surge prev, like surge prevention that caught my eye because I was wondering if it could have anything to do with what we saw happen to the wall screen during the brownout. Um, There's, of course, the Jane Carmody cleaning, a file we'll see much more of later. Uh, And a lot of people are talking about the glass house cleaning file. Now, at first, I thought that was just like another person's last name, you know, like Carmody cleaning, glass house cleaning. But I've since been convinced it might refer to cleaning the dome up at the top of the silo which is where like the lights are that simulate daylight in the up top. Maybe that's the glass house that some people ah. are, are thinking. And yeah, just to be clear, I, because I've seen some confusion about it online, this dome, it's underground. It's not above ground. This is just like what if you go to the top floors in the silo and you look up and there's all those daylight simulation lights, that's the dome that you see in the blueprints in the hard drive. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I know that that was confusing to some people. And also <laughs> a fun one for... Um, there's a couple files called TPS requests and TPS reports. So for fans of the 90s movie Office Space, and anyone, <laughs> anyone who hasn't seen Office Space, watch it immediately as soon as you finish this podcast. Yeah, please <laughs> do yourself a favor. Go and watch Office Space. It's fantastic. So you're a fan too, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, I haven't watched it in years. But like, when I was when I was sort of early tw- late teens, early 20s, that was on like hard, hard rotation. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, we used to watch it a lot in college, especially. Yeah, and and so while Jules is poking around in the hard drive, looking at the blueprints and everything we saw before, uh, Camille is getting out of her cuffs, picking up like a hammer mallet thing and sneaking up behind Juliet, uh, who by now is completely engrossed because she found a file labeled start here. And it's a video of George minds are blowing left and yeah, right like, at least. Yeah, Alicia was literally doing the mind blown um, <laughs> mime as she was saying that 
yeah, and I guess I guess Martha didn't actually need to fix Chekhov's camcorder because it seems to have been in full working order before George died. Yeah, no, somebody just needed to read the instruction book. Like, George, I can imagine George spending an afternoon just like randomly pushing buttons until <laughs> until something <laughs> happened. Yeah, um, yeah, but he used it to leave Juliet a message. Uh, he thought she'd be the one to find it because he left her the note with the Pez dispenser that we saw back in episode three. So he, when he talks about having left her clues, that's what he's talking about, that he left that Pez dispenser in the note that said, remember where you found it. And then there's that part that she ripped off at the bottom that's like, you know, I found what I was looking for, referring to the door. So that's why, yeah, so he led her to the camcorder. He didn't realize she'd be bringing Holston with her and handing the hard drive off to him. He had no idea it would take so long for her to see this. And it's completely blowing her mind, like we said. But yeah, Camille, did she seem at all surprised to see a video to you? No. And that's interesting because you can read that in one of two ways. You can read it either that she was just so caught up in the moment and protecting herself and Anthony that it didn't quite all register, which is, I guess, plausible. Or she's already seen something similar which the only way she would have seen something similar is if she'd been in the janitor's big surveillance room. Or, oh yeah, or Sims brought home some work and showed her on his computer, yeah. Um, so yeah, the way that that scene is constructed, I don't think it leans particularly one way or the other with how you're supposed to be interpreting it. So I could just buy that she was too distracted in the moment for, for it all to like fully register. But equally, I could buy that the, the reason she wasn't surprised is that she wasn't surprised. Right. So, but as she's like sneaking up behind Jules, all panther-like, not really paying attention to this video, once she starts seeing George talk about people needing to see the truth, uh, she stops in her tracks and she says, stop to Jules. She says, the second you connected that drive, they knew where you were. You could either run now or keep watching and die. And yeah, man, the first time I watched this, I, this really twisted my heart in a knot because I was I was afraid maybe she would never get to see the end of that video if she didn't watch it now. How were you feeling? Yeah, and it was also like, Camille, you could have said that while it was waiting to boot up. like. Yeah, but I think it was something about what she saw George saying to Jules that made her change her mind, you know, made her go from, I want just want this lady to get caught to rooting for her somehow, it almost felt like at the end. No, I think it was just... This is a more efficient, more certain way of getting this person out of my house. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Could be. Because she knows that sooner or later the judicial raiders are going to turn up. Mm -hmm. She knows that they are determined to take down Juliet. And even even if Sims has has given orders for them not to shoot, she explicitly says, I've been given those kind of orders too and I know what can happen. So, from her point of view, to get Juliet to leave of her own volition is by far the most preferable outcome in terms of making sure that her and Anthony are safe. Okay. Yeah. Um, I I think, I don't know, I I think she saw some things as a raider that are are making her question in some way, and something that she saw in that video with George. Um, we'll We'll see how it plays out, but... She also says her husband isn't in control of everything that happens in the silo. Uh, what do you think she was referring to? Do you think she just means like the masses are out of his control or that Bernard's in control? I, mean, I, was, I was saying the masses, Bernard, and maybe whoever is, whoever is making that little Applebee's fob glow. 
Last week you were thinking Simsnard might be an equal partnership. Is that shifting? This episode actually answers that, that I was wrong. It's not an equal partnership because Bernard talks about being negligent, appointing a shadow um, later on. And so it's clear that actually Bernard is top dog within the silo and that Sims is answerable to him. Okay. Um, Now, yeah, so speaking of Bernard, let's backtrack a bit and uh, check in on him. Um, So we find him pouring himself another glass of John's good stuff. So I guess that's not gone yet. But this time he changes his mind and pours it back. Uh, What do you think is going on with him here? Yeah, I mean, I think I've talked about this before and and a number of our correspondents have. I think Judge Meadows is not the only one in the silo with a potential alcohol problem. No, yeah, but this time he pours it back. He does, but he sort of pauses and I think it's taking quite a bit of self-control for Bernard to pour it back. And I think he, he really wanted a drink in that moment. And I think later on when we get to the interrogation scene with Lucas, it's telling for me that the first thing he does in that scene is pour himself and Lucas what looked like quite stiff drinks Mm -hmm. so yeah I still think Bernard has a little bit has if not a full-blown dependency on alcohol certainly a very problematic relationship with alcohol no I think you're probably right but I, I think that him pouring it back at this particular moment is telling of just how worried he seems to be about things, you know, that he feels like he needs to keep a clear mind in ways that he's not usually so concerned about, it seems. Well, yeah, and he also has to give himself a minute to to let when Sims knocks on the door. He also has to give himself a minute to gather himself before he tells Sims to come in. Yeah. As if he's like sort of putting his emotions back right. in check and sort of getting ready for the conversation. So right. yeah, Bernard is, is on the edge um, yeah. this entire episode. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, Sims comes in to give him a report and Bernard asks Sims if he sent any teams anywhere else other than the places he said to look for Juliet. And um, he's giving Sims a chance to fess up that he sent one team to go check up on his family. But Sims lies to him and Bernard knows it. And he kind of like makes a little face at that moment yeah i don't know why sims lied because like i said a i think it's justifiable and b you're lying to the guy who can see everybody more or less everybody in the silo all the time like it's a pointless lie just like everybody all like a hundred of you or whatever who are apparently on this judicial goon squad uh nobody tell the big boss (laughs) the thing um do you think this is also the moment that bernard rules sims out as his shadow Yes, I think it very well could be. I think Bernard had been seriously thinking about it because he's got to appoint somebody, and if mm-hmm. not, if not Sims, who? Because Sims at least knows um, a good part of the mysterious goings on behind the silo. Whereas if you pick somebody else, you've kind of got to sit them down and go, "Yeah, everything you knew about life is a lie." Basically, the society you thought you grew up in is actually completely. I suppose you could pick Amundsen or one of the other goons but they don't seem ready for that kind of responsibility. So yeah, I do think that was the moment when when Bernard at least questioned, starts to question Sims's ultimate loyalties or perhaps mm. not his loyalties but whether he's really got the the commitment to follow through with, you know, what might need to be done at some point. Mm-hmm. And also it, this scene made me wonder 
does Bernard not have any family? Does he not have any connections? Not that we've seen. Because he clearly has no sympathy with what Sims has done. Yeah. So either he's even more of a psychopath than we took him for, or the nature of this job has meant that he's just cut himself off from, like, human connections. Yeah, I think that uh, both could be true. Um but yeah, by the way, about the shadow thing, to to be clear, I've seen people asking about this. And um, when Bernard's talking about his shadow, he means as head of IT, not as mayor, because mayor is an elected position. So unless one dies on the job. Ah, I actually took that a third way. I took that as head of the janitors. Well, OK, yeah, it could be. Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're still waiting to find out what the delineation is between his role of he- as head of IT and whatever he is with the janitors. Yeah. But yeah, he means in that uh, in that capacity. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, the mayors don't have shadows, especially not mayors pro tem. And yeah, I guess like if he had a shadow, then he could stay mayor. Yeah, I guess. But I don't know. Again, we still have no clarity on whether this is what this version of Bernard actually wants is to be mayor or not. Yeah. So but this this whole shadow business, it goes back to what we were talking about last week about him thinking the servers are the most important thing in the silo and not trusting other people to be able to handle whatever is involved in taking care of them. So if not Sims, who else do you think Bernard might consider as a shadow? Do you think there's anyone we've met who could be a candidate? No, I don't think there is. Hmm. Um, so you understand his frustration yeah no I mean I think that may be deliberate on Bernard's part because he's in a really tricky situation because in order to like evaluate whether somebody could be a shadow he would have to let them into at least part of the secrets Hmm. going on Mm -hmm. in the silo and if they then turn him down he's got to figure out a way to get them out you know he's got to do uh, another version of a mind wipe yeah, either a mind wipe or did I hear you say you wanted to go outside? Yes. <laughs> yeah, so actually Bernard is in a really tricky HR spot here. I'm not sure how he's gonna gonna square that particular circle. So even if he's got doubts, it's gonna have to be Sims because it kind of can't be anybody else. Yeah, but can Sims do it? I don't know. Yeah. He's not exactly shown delicacy. He's not as bad as Trumbull, you know. No, maybe we, maybe it should be and like. The, and the thing is, as this goes on, he's getting more. He's getting less and less delicate. Yeah, it's true. They say it should be like the the Bernard to Trumbull scale of like clumsy villain. <laughs> yeah. So uh, back in Bernard's office, so for now, the bad news keeps on coming. Uh, I was worried about my boy Lucas Avinash last week, and it turns out I had every reason to be. They are 100% aware of the fact that he got a note from Juliet when he was sitting in the cafeteria and then went directly to her apartment and was present for the incident. And now it's time for some questioning. So Lucas goes in with the whole big innocent eyes approach and uh, Bernard is back in nice guy mode. But yeah, there's no nail pulling here, thankfully, but everything Bernard asks is loaded. Like, so he asks, would you consider yourself a curious man? And uh, now in our world, my favorite people are the ones who would answer that question. Hell yeah. But in this case, I'm like, no, Lucas, anything but curious. Don't tell him you're curious. <laughs> yeah, but he sidesteps it with a more analytical than curious, which is exactly the right word to pick to make Bernard both respect you and also worry that you might be the wrong kind of trouble. So, But he is analytical enough not to have any of that drink Bernard poured for him, at least. 
Yeah, Bernard, he just like cuts off his like grasping job interview like answers about how working in IT is so fulfilling, blah, blah, blah. He just wants to know what Lucas knows, what Juliet told him. And he admits to have been listening, uh, saying Juliet running the water made it hard to hear. But he doesn't cop up to the cameras. He calls the one Juliet ripped out of the wall a climate sensor, illegal and dangerous to tamper with in a carefully regulated underground silo, of course. And yeah, Lucas, he kind of looks like annoyed at first, but then starts to get really scared looking and uh, or at least shocked to have some of what Juliet said confirmed. What do you think Lucas is thinking here? What do you think he believes right now? Yeah, no, I, I'm not sure Lucas is thinking very much about the big mystery of the silo. I think what he's thinking in that moment is, like you said, I am absolutely petrified for myself and probably my mom, who I take care of. And I really, really want this conversation to end really abruptly. Um, But he doesn't sell Juliet out. He sort of dances around. And what I found really interesting about this, and I put this in my instant reaction, is Bernard is giving him a lot of information. Because he talks about the atmospheric sensors, but he's also basically, we straight out admit, you've admitted that you were listening to that conversation. You've kind of admitted to having Lucas followed. You've admitted to having Juliet under surveillance. Um, so I think, you know, Bernard was less than subtle in this scene. And I think that speaks to the urgency of the situation is he doesn't have time for subtlety. He doesn't have time to to mess about with Lucas or do like good cop, bad cop routine. He just goes straight to intimidation. Well, I guess it also, it also makes me worry for Lucas. Yeah. Like he knows too much. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, but Lucas, he's not giving up any information that he doesn't have to. And yeah, after some desk slamming from Bernard, um, he does admit that the drive was labeled with a number 18. But also, he genuinely has no idea where Juliet is, like Dr. Nichols. So he couldn't even give that up if he wanted to. But he's also, he's not about to blurt out like the laundry list of murder, spying, and all the other claims Juliet rattled off for him last week. So or even talk about their relatively more innocuous conversations about the lights in the sky for all of Bernard's crying into that. Yeah, they be and Bernard do have a bit of a preamble conversation about yeah. the lights in the sky. And like, yeah, Bernard is just registering that this guy is trouble. He's way too curious about the world. Well, or maybe I, I think he has at least some begrudging respect for, you know, like it's dangerous to have someone whose intellect Bernard respects um, because it means that he also fears what you can do with it. Because obviously curious people don't last long. But I do sense like that he's genuinely like, yeah, what are you sussing out about what's up there? Yeah, because he, he Bernard says, because you work in IT, I wouldn't know your face, but I do know your numbers and they're quite good. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, in short, Bernard puts it in some phrasing that I have a feeling is going to be haunting Lucas next episode and beyond if he makes it. Uh, Bernard says, you did nothing. So nothing to help Juliet, nothing to hurt her, nothing, uh, didn't report the hard drive, just slunk away when the raiders came, as Bernard put it. Uh, Did nothing to give in to Bernard more than the bare minimum, but also nothing to stop him either. So for his lack of efforts, Lucas is getting locked up with the threat of every silo punishment possible hanging over his head, unless you help us find her to be continued next week. And um, yeah, Bernard's totally on to Lucas's crush on Juliet, by the way, which is definitely not something he was aware of uh, when the book version of this plotline was going on. Um, Do you think Lucas will collaborate? Do you think he'll help Bernard? 
I mean, even if he does, that like you said, there's a limited amount of information that Lucas actually has. Yeah. So I don't think he him collaborating would necessarily be fatal for Juliet. Well, he could get him to like lure Juliet somewhere or something. Yeah, that that's a possibility. I mean, I kind of got from this that 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 Lucas is a is a decent guy, but not a heroic one. Um, mm. Uh, I, I don't think he's going to go out of his way to betray Juliet, but yeah, I can imagine a situation where, like, yeah, if Bernard is threatening with sending him out to clean or sending his mother out to clean, then yeah, absolutely, I can see Lucas folding like a cheap pair of underwear, frankly. <laughs> yeah, I, he's not acting very heroic now, and I think that's something that he's going to be he's going to be thinking about his inactions for sure. Also, um, Avi Nash can do like wide-eyed terror really well. He oh can yeah, do just like. He is just scared to death of Bernard, um, <laughs> just justifiably so. But yeah, props to Abby Nash for really getting you know wide-eyed terror across really well. Yeah, no, I think I think he's a, I think that everyone's a good casting. It's incredible. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So questioning done. Samson Bernard head back to the surveillance room, and uh oh, turns out they can just scan the system to see where a specific hard drive is plugged in. So number eighteen. Bernard demands giving Captain Obvious, a.k.a. Diego Aki Kotabe, a chance to pipe up with a, Sir, serial numbers have nine digits. And Bernard gets a snap back. This has two. A one followed by an eight, otherwise known as 18. Oh, Diego, never change. <laughs> yeah, I, he will never be Diego in my mind. He will always be Captain Obvious. Yeah, so I, I found it quite interesting that they can locate a hard drive whenever it's plugged in because it goes back to something we discussed in the feedback, I think, a couple of episodes ago. That the computers in the silo definitely are networked. Yeah, definitely. Clearly, yeah. Yeah, and of course they realize the signal is coming from inside Sims's own apartment. And yeah, I have to admit, I kind of, I kind of chuckled at the way he goes tearing off with Bernard's. You've got to be fucking kidding me! <laughs> well, by the way, well done, well done, Common. Like that guy, yeah. that guy is really pounding up those stairs. Yeah, but he's not beating Bernard's charges that he puts his family first today. No, and also like the, that leather trench coat is just billowing out beautifully, is <laughs> he? That's why he's been wearing it all season, just for this, JC. Yeah, it's just billowing all over the place. Uh, yeah, and so the Raiders, they all go tearing through the silo behind him. But as Diego Obvious points out, the cameras along the way start going dark. And it's making it impossible for them to follow Juliet when she slips out of the Sims' apartment. Yeah, now who, what's causing that? Yeah, who do you think? Do you think like, like some people were saying maybe it could be Camille somehow? Maybe, you know, because Juliet talks to Patrick and the other uh, IT guy later about them hacking into the surveillance network. So could Patrick have seen this? I think it's possibly Patrick. But the first name that came to my mind was Walker. Okay, that's also a good point. Because she talks to Johns about the computer she built. Yeah, exactly. That could be a good call. That would make sense. Yeah. Yeah, but interestingly, by the way, we see during this scene, Bernard looks at a monitor labeled Silo 1 Level 17, which I have to say raised some eyebrows even amongst book readers. So just noting it, not sure what it means, why it's there. Silo 1. I love the fact that they are throwing in little touches that, that just wrong foot the book readers. It's just, yeah, exactly. I, I like it that, that just every so often we're on the, we're on the same like informational plane. <laughs> I think I think quite often actually, yeah. 
But yeah, so of course, when Sims gets home, Juliet is gone and his wife is comforting their son who looks a bit traumatized. And Camille admits right away that she let Juliet go. So this does seem to be an open, communicative relationship. She says she did it because she didn't want the raiders to bring danger into their home with their son. And yeah, Robert opens up with his wife about Bernard's shadowing doubts. Now, how did you read this scene? Is is Camille being supportive spouse or is she the brains behind the brawn? I read it as supportive spouse, but I think you can read it a little bit as, as a sort of Lady Macbeth mm. situation. I hope they don't go down that road because I think that, that... I think she's too good for that. Yeah, she's too good for that. I, I've known her for an episode and I love her. And that is kind of a bit of a lazy trope. Because yeah, no, so I took that as... as supportive spouse but i think the really disturbing part of that conversation is between sims and uh between robert and anthony yeah he anthony runs out of his room and he he's he seems genuinely warm with his dad so despite what i said earlier about like the name plates um but he asks if daddy's gonna send that lady out to clean and adds i hope so and yeah we were talking about how much sims son might have been infected with the sims family mentality so far so do you think that's what we're seeing here there's something in the way the child actor delivers that line. I don't know whether it's because there's just something about the way child actors deliver the line, but there's something very creepy about the way oh, he delivers yeah. that line. Very ominous. Yeah, I mean, of course, I, I can understand why he would see Juliet as a scary bad guy, but you don't want like you don't want to hear a child wishing something punitive on someone, you know? Yeah, this is the thing. He understands exactly what the consequences of sending somebody out to clean are. So he's not mm-hmm. just wishing something punitive on her. Well, he understands it, but does he like grok it, you know? Like does he does he truly understand death yet? I don't know. That's that's true, yeah. Yeah, but I, I like that they are building complexity into even the child characters. So Is Camille a character in the book, by the way? We don't get into Sims's whole family situation. Okay. Yeah, and then so while all of this is going on, uh Billings is on a mission of his own. He's feeling the blame from Sims and from himself uh, of letting Juliet slip away. And he's also got to be pretty curious about like WTF is going on. Um, Do you think he believes for a second that Juliet asked to go outside? No, he didn't believe it last week and he certainly doesn't believe it now. Yeah. I think this this little treasure hunt that Billings goes on, it's... The first time we've really seen, I think, why Judicial wanted him as sheriff, because not only is he, you know, an absolute stickler for the pact, but he does actually have some pretty good investigative skills. Yeah. Up until this point, we haven't seen Billings being, you know, being a law enforcement officer on his own. He's always been back up to, to Juliet, and it's always been her taking the initiative. So... Yeah, I think for the first time, I kind of understand where Judicial are coming from with wanting Billings to be sheriff, because leaving his syndrome to one side for a second, he has the combination of reverence for the pact and Mm -hmm. the actual skills to do the job. No, yeah, he goes full Sherlock this episode. And he he pushes his way into Juliet's place, which is being searched. And he's pulling the whole, like, it's my responsibility to investigate any request to go outside card. Though the perception of his authority seems to be waning, at least amongst the Raiders. Uh, but luckily, he happens to be talking to Jean Robinson, played by Karika Sinani. And this is the Raider we saw last week in the cornfield, 
who had like a look of doubt pass across her face when Jules was getting arrested. And this is the one that, yeah, people seem to keep confusing with Sandy, the former sheriff's assistant who moved down to 105. Uh, so here we see Jean without the mask on, but I can still completely understand why people would confuse these two. Yeah. Now, it strikes me that this is this show has always been like careful not to cast people who look too much alike. Like everyone looks quite different from each other. And when there are some similarities, the script even calls it out. So like when Kennedy calls Billings Holston Jr., we're reminded that like we can see some Holston and Billings, not just physically, but also this is a man with a good heart who strives for order because he thinks it's the way to protect the people he loves. And yeah, as, indeed, as we see in this episode, some sick detective skills too. But yeah, just all of this is to say, like, it doesn't feel like a coincidence that Jean looks so much like Sandy. What do you think? Do you think these two characters could be related or something? Maybe. I, to be honest, I hadn't given it that much thought. So yeah, maybe. Well, I guess we'll see. Anyway, Jean puts on the tough girl voice in front of her colleagues before pulling Billings aside and fangirling a little. Yeah, because Billings teaches classes on the pact. Of course Billings teaches classes on the pact. Did you doubt it? <laughs> no, but I just, I love the fact that it's actually yeah. confirmed in canon, in universe, that he teaches classes on the pact. I'm sure, I'm sure like he looks forward to it. He puts together his little curriculum and has like a folder with everything. Yeah, I'm going to say, like for a whole variety of reasons, like episode by episode, like if you do one of the, if you do one of those quizzes, you know which character are you in the silo? I yeah. am Billings. I am yeah. Billings every day of the week. And also, I like the fact that she goes, "You probably don't remember me," and he instantly goes, "Jean." Your name is Jean. Yeah. 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 I think the fact that he remembers her name should like wins him some extra points, right? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Because yeah. speaking as an academic. Um, one of the hardest things to do is to remember your ex. You can remember your current students' names and faces, right. but once they finish the course, they just get memory hold. Yeah, you have to wipe clean so there's room for the new ones. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, for now, Jean, despite being touched that he remembered her, she has no choice but to send him away. Uh, but not before he clocks the broken mirror with some kind of socket in the wall behind it for the camera. But he doesn't know that. And uh, Jean tells him there was no note, but the place had been torn apart. So, yeah, got to be looking suspicious to Billings. So, yeah, he clearly he sneaks just right back in once the Raiders are gone. And the mirror, the glass has been cleaned up, but it hasn't been replaced. And he finds one shard under the table. Everything else has been emptied out. Yeah, I guess they even got George's file out of the oven, probably. Yeah, probably. I guess, yeah, Juliet has probably got it memorized by now. Uh, except, yeah, Detective Billings here, he thinks to examine the glass in the light, and he realizes it's only reflective on one side, and the other side you can see right through, like a window. And then he notices the Raiders have been busy with the vent, which is now standing open, but it's empty. No surprise. We knew they were onto the vents and suspected Juliet wouldn't hide things there anymore. But Billings does remember that time that Juliet got him to, and I'm using air quotes here, discover a Pez dispenser in a medicine cabinet in Trumbull's place. And yeah, Billings begins to wonder if that might not just be a place she likes to hide things in general. So of course, the cabinet itself has been cleared out, but Billings, uh, he got some detecting superpowers this week because he notices that the caulking that seals the cabinet into place is loose and he can just pull it out and then he can pull the whole cabinet out of the wall too. Um yeah, what do you think? Were you surprised by Billings' upgrade in detective skills this week? 
Well, no, I didn't. I didn't take it as an upgrade in detective skills. I just took it that he'd always, you know, he'd always been sort of observant. But like I said, in every episode up until now, Juliet has always been the one taking the initiative, and and Billings has been like her wingman. Um, the one thing I did question is maintenance have been a little bit sloppy in the upkeep of um, the sheriff's apartment. You know, with the glass. Yeah, with the with the glass and the caulking and everything, maintenance are not on top of things here. Well, I can see I can see them missing the caulking. I'm more surprised that he noticed it than they missed it. But yeah. the the glass, I don't know. I guess I always yeah. Whenever I I break a glass, I always feel like I find little shards, but not like that was a pretty big shard. That was but a pretty I, big shard. Yeah. yeah, I always find like little shards for like a week. I feel like yeah. And uh, answering our question from last week. Behind the cabinet is da, 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 the book. The Georgia book. Georgia's on our minds again. Um, maybe for the last time for a while, based on the way Billings desecrates this precious relic. Ah, well, we'll come to that. But I think I think there's something tricky going on there. Something tricky? Yeah. We see him turn the stove on. Mm-hmm. I don't think the book is in there. I think that's... What did we see burning inside? It was book-shaped. I think that might be George's file. Okay, hmm, hmm, could be. But first he takes a good long look at the book and he sees the beach spread and we get a glimpse of the next page with text talking about a historical plantation. Uh, we see a spread of what I assume is downtown Atlanta and yeah, he's shaking badly through it all. What do you think, shock, syndrome, both? Both. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what Billings expected to find, but it wasn't that. Yeah, no. Um, and yeah, like Billings is not curious about the before times. He's not George. He's not Lucas. He's not even Patrick Kennedy. I'm not saying that he doesn't. I'm not saying that he, these questions have never crossed his mind because they probably crossed the mind of everybody in the silo at some point. But he doesn't focus on them in the same way yeah. that George did. So yeah, like you can see that you can see that the sort of conflict in Billings because on the one hand. On the one hand, he's fascinated by this. On the other hand, he knows that this isn't supposed to exist, that this is a definitely a forbidden relic, and anybody having this is breaking the pact. Right. Um, and so I think that's where you get the sort of conflict between him wanting to preserve this and wanting to destroy it, because he, he tears, well, at least one page out of it. It looks like it's only one. So um, obviously, yeah, he, his brain is just like breaking under the weight of this new information. And um, the part of me understands why, like it totally, he turned my heart to ashes when he burned that book. Now you, you think that he didn't go through with I it. I don't think he went through with it. I hadn't considered it. Um, and I, I think that's a very interesting consideration. And I'm glad to add it to the realm of possibilities, but I'm still leaning toward, I think he, I think he burned it. Okay. I do think that he burned it. Okay. If he did, if he did, where would that put him? Where's the billing alignment check in? Where does well, if he destroyed the book, yeah, he's heading towards Simsnard territory. But on the other hand, even if he did burn the book, he didn't completely destroy it. No, that's true. There is at least one page that he pocketed. There's a he tore one page out first. Yeah. Yeah. What page do you think he kept? (sighs) I think the one about the plantation. Yeah, you think. Yeah. Um, well, it, it does seem to be blue, and it does look like there's like a water page with a kid opposite it when he tears it out. Maybe it was just a page at random to preserve, to like square the circle of this is fascinating, but we shouldn't have it kind of thing. It's just yeah. pick something at random. 
that's going to be an interesting question to have answered. Uh, and I have a feeling that they'll give that to us next week. So I'm looking forward to that. No, yeah, burning the thing or whatever he burned seems to give Billing some peace, though, because he looks much more steady as he exits to the siren of the smoke alarm. So, yeah, think maintenance will find anything but dust when they come? <laughs> yeah, but it's like, I'm just a bit concerned for everybody else on that particular level of the silo, to be honest. I hope the fire brigade um, get there <laughs> yeah. pretty quick. I mean, I guess at least it's all cement, so that's good fire That's true, that's true. <laughs> Although the next sheriff, uh, well, wait, he's the next sheriff. Yeah, he's he just the next burned sheriff. his own apartment. He, he just burned down his own apartment. Yeah. Uh, I guess they'll probably be there soon. But hey, no cameras. Um, no cameras. And then, yeah, Billings goes straight back to the sheriff's office, and which is yeah his office now. And he takes his copy of the pact and shoves it into a drawer. Now, do you think it's over between them, or do you think they're just taking a break? No, they're they're on a break. Like they're 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 too deeply committed to each other to let a silly thing like an up, <laughs> like a world changing revelation end that relationship. But I always think it's important for this. Billings is committed to the idea of the pack, not necessarily every yeah. letter of and it, not every word yeah. of it. I mean, I think it's it's in a way, you know, like some people have questioned why there hasn't been any religion brought up, where, whereas, you know, we, as we talked briefly in the breakdown of, of uh, Martin's and John's funeral in the book, there is mention of, of religion. Um, but in a way, it's like I do have to say the religion in the book is kind of pack centric, as you might guess. And here they just were like, well, let's just make the religion is the pact, but it's still being followed by the same fervor. And do you dare question it? And what does questioning it look like? And can you still believe in the core of it while questioning the details? And I, I like that they're asking these questions in this way. That's not unprecedented. You look at the way people treated um, like the works of Mao Zedong in China in the 1960s. Or, you know, how people are supposed to treat the works of um, Kim Il-sung in modern-day North Korea. Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, in another part of the silo, we meet my other favorite new character from this week, Danny, the red-headed hacker, played by Will Merrick. He exudes, like, this typical IT guy of our world energy, like, giving Silicon Valley, like, as in the TV show and, I guess, the tech mecca also vibes. And yeah, he manages to sweet talk his way through security despite the curfew. And by sweet talk, I mean act innocuously neurotic enough, deferring to, oh, you know how bosses are, right? That security just doesn't care enough to stop him. Yeah, and he looks not at all threatening. So I think that helps. And uh, he's going to see Patrick Kennedy, Rick Gomez. And I kind of, I let out like a delighted whoop when I first saw him. Yeah, I'm right there with you with the delighted whoop. Like Patrick Kennedy, as minor characters go, I think Patrick Kennedy is probably my favorite, to be honest. And and I remember when we first saw that he was credited for a bunch of episodes, we were like, like, what are they possibly going to do with this character? Yeah, where, where could this possibly be going? And now he's become like one of the unexpected delights of the season. But he's not alone, of course, because former Sheriff Nichols is lurking, still riding that claim that she saved Patrick's life to call in yet another favor. Yeah, but Patrick's really doing it for the watch, so. Yeah, I I don't know if he's, I don't think he's doing it for the watch. I don't think he spent 10 credits on a message to call Danny in out of the goodness of his heart either. Um, I think... Yeah, it turns out like he and Danny, they have a history with this particular hard drive. Yeah. And they're actually the ones that who Regina got it from. So and yeah, they know all about George. Uh, but when Patrick and Danny had it, uh, they knew that there was like something on there, but they couldn't 
they couldn't decrypt it. And it was George stumbling across Allison's memo on undeleting files and printing it out before Bernard could erase it, ironically, from the IT internet. That was the key that unlocked this mystery. So these guys now have like the one case that they could never solve. It suddenly fallen right back into their lap with the key handed right to them. So the answer to everything is at their fingertips. And that's why I think Patrick is doing this personally. Yeah, I think that's right. And I love that. I, I thought it was really cool that Danny the Hacker instantly knew who George was. Mm-hmm. Because I think that just goes to underline that, yeah, George had made a name for himself in the right. like the, the silo underground. The fringe society. The fringe yeah. of society, yeah. And like, um, maybe I'm over-interpreting this, but this is what this podcast is for. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that th- there was like a hint of affection in Danny's voice. When he right. said um, George's name, I think they were. I think they were more than just like people that traded information. I think they were. They, I think they were friends of a sort within that kind of structure of society. They were friendly. So better friends than Sims and Marns. Oh yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. Well, I mean, come on, Marns ended up dead. I mean, that's not Sims's fault, but yeah, it's true. Danny did not kill uh or have any hand in the death of george he probably would have preferred it didn't happen so that's a much better friend by most measures (laughs) um but yeah so they i think yeah so patrick and danny they are like super intrigued and intrigued enough to handle this like hot potato of a hard drive which bt dubs is like not only set for sysop clearance but it's also actively being hunted on the very system they're trying to plug into but Danny Boy's like, no problem, just going to route the signal through an apartment on 98 belonging to someone Patrick has a grudge against. And um, so it's kind of funny. They they do it as like a grudge thing, but they kind of have to know that, you know, the janitors, they immediately look at this and they're like, that's too far away. That's that's bullshit. That's not where they actually are. And so they don't even yeah. go bother. The- um, but yeah, it was a, the grudge was that this guy on 98 had ripped Patrick yeah. off with counterfeit right. goods. right. But yeah, he doesn't even get bothered. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so they can see it in the control room, right? At the same time, the what's going. So it's yes. got to be blowing people's minds there, don't you think? Yeah, I would think so. And like, is somebody watching the the video at the same? Yeah, that's that's an interesting. But point. I don't know I if like only that. Sims and Bernard are seeing it, or what, or if like the other people in that room are also have eyes on it. Yeah. Yeah, interesting question. But yeah, so we we get back into that start here video with uh, George, and now we finally get to see the whole thing play out. And uh, yeah, the wind seems to have like just like tickled my eyes a little bit during this part because they just kind of watered oh, up. A yeah, bit. I mean, uh, it, was, it was proper heartbreaking stuff. And I do like the star here. I think it's very Lewis Carroll. Yeah, and I liked also that they did like give us like a little moment of comic relief when Patrick has to drag Danny away from the video. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not not only is that funny, but it's it's proof positive that Patrick Kennedy is not yeah. a complete asshole. And um, yeah. I kind of cackled when Danny just like throws up a finger, like, "Oh, just a minute, watching something." <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in the grace of that minimal privacy. In a nice bit of closure, George tells Jules that he got he did get involved with her because he wanted to use her, but then he genuinely fell in love with her. And um, he says, I'm so glad I got to be the lucky bastard in this fucked up place who got to be with you. And in case I wasn't clear enough earlier, I love you, Juliet Nichols. And it's what she needed to hear. And when she mouths, I love you, that heart that had been like scorched by the book burning, it sprang to life again like a phoenix. 
and then shattered into a thousand pieces on the spot. So um, this particular exchange might not come from the book, but it's like very true to the spirit of it. Yeah, it's, it was. I'm so I'm so glad that that was resolved and that what Regina was telling um, Juliet wasn't wrong. It just wasn't the entire story. Right. right. Yeah, and uh, George also tells her that he found the door he was looking for. It's huge, fifteen feet high, metal. He can't get through it, but he thinks she should be able to figure out a way. And cryptically, to the frustration of viewers everywhere, he adds, I know you're wondering what I did about the water, but it turns out it was nothing to worry about. What do you think that could possibly mean? I have no idea. Did he drain the water somewhere? Is that like a a massive stopper you could take out? Or the things not under the water like it seems? Or I don't know. Yeah, no, that befuddled me, frankly. Yeah, I'm assuming we're going to find out next week. And yeah, and of course, George tells her to look at the Jane Carmody cleaning file, um, the file that Allison and George looked at in the first episode. And she finds it dated to silo year 97, so 46 years ago, if it's dated according to the current system. And it's where we see the greenery outside. The exact same birds flying the exact same The exact pattern same birds <laughs> that we saw through Holston's visor in episode two and, and reflected in Allison's glasses in episode one. And um yeah, but this time we also hear Jane Carmody's voice saying that the display in the cafeteria is fake. Jane believes this greenery she sees during her cleaning is the actual reality, and Jules, Patrick, and Danny agree. Allison's right, Juliet says. The display is a lie. The end. So what did you think when the screen went black on episode nine? Well, I mean, the thing is that what they're, what they're seeing when they go out to clean, that isn't real either because there's no way that there's no way you get that, that exact formation of birds right. in the exact same place in the sky every three single time. Times. Yeah. <laughs> well, to be fair, two of them were watching the same video. Two of them were the Jane Carmody video. And then the third one was when was Holston. So that's two separate. Okay. But uh, yeah, I still don't believe that what they're seeing when they go out is any more real than what they're seeing in the display in the cafeteria. If those are the two options, like reality is option three. So I don't I don't believe either of those displays. But the thing is, if everybody in the silo believes it's safe to go outside, and it isn't, mm-hmm. um, then, you know, what Bernard is talking about with the extension of the silo, right. that is what will come to pass. A real threat, yeah. Yeah. But the only thing I can come up with is, do they have to create a fake environment to incentivize people to actually clean the lens hmm. as opposed to you know just standing there or or just running over that hill yeah so like that that's the best explanation i can come up with for why you would fake it but that doesn't i don't know why but that isn't satisfying somehow all right if um if this question isn't answered next week i will get a hat and eat it you know it's okay i think this has got to be i think i think the answer to this question which spoiler is going to raise new questions uh is going to be the cliffhanger that ends the season that's what i think right so we're going to find out what the applebee's thing is (laughs) and we're gonna (laughs) i i have i made i made a list of eight predictions that i sent to a friend who doesn't care about spoilers We'll call it nine if we put the Carla Meadows thing back in there, but I still, I don't know. If that's, okay. I, I don't know how much I believe in that anymore, but. I need, I need you to promise me that at the end of the final episode, you will read out that list and you'll tell us what you got right and what you got wrong. 
as long as it's not a spoiler, I will I will abs- I will tell you how many I got right, how many got wrong, and I'll tell you what they were as long as it's not a spoiler. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So not to bring up Scotty again, but this is me doing exactly that. So Scotty is the book character who didn't make it to the TV show, who started as Jules' shadow before getting recruited to IT. And if you're a regular listener, you've heard me talk about him a few times before. And um, Danny, he kind of reminded me of a like a more sarcastic version of Scotty in this episode. And he like filled in that part of Scotty's book role as Jules' IT ally, the role that I thought I thought they might be putting Lucas into that role. But it seems, yeah, they've given that to Danny. Yeah, and also he was playing like good hacker, bad hacker with um, Bernard. Because yeah. it's that Bernard being all badass going, he's good. But I'm better. But I'm better. <laughs> um, but okay, so not the hacker versus hacker part, but just in general, like the whole way that that scene went down. It reminds me of the scene from the book Wool by Hugh Howey, uh, on which the show is based. And this is going to be my only reading this week. Uh, it's told from Jules's perspective right after she's muscled her way into IT in the scene that I read from the episode seven post credit. And were you seen? He asked, he being Scotty. She looks at him incredulously. Was I seen? Of course I was seen. How do you think I got in? There are people everywhere. But did they see you come in here? He whispered. Scotty, what the hell is going on? Juliet was beginning to suspect she had hurried all this way for nothing. You sent me a wire, which already seemed desperate enough, but you told me to come now, so here I am. Where did you get all this stuff? He asked. Scotty grabbed a spool of printout from his desk and held it in trembling hands. Juliet stepped beside him. She placed her hand on his arm and looked at the paper. Just calm down, she said quietly. She tried to read a few lines and immediately recognized the gibberish. I can get into a lot of trouble for this. Wait, you know what this nonsense is, right? You can read it? He bobbed his head. Jules, I didn't know what I was grabbing for you at the time. I was, um, it was gigs of crap. I didn't look at it. I just grabbed it and passed it on. Why is this so dangerous? She asked. I can't even talk about it, Scotty said. I'm not cleaning material, Jules. I'm not. He held out the scroll. Here, I shouldn't have even printed it out, but I wanted to delete the wire. You've got to take it. Get it out of here. I can't be caught with it. Juliet took the scroll, but just to calm him down, Scotty, sit down, please, look. I know you're scared, but I need you to sit and talk to me about this. This is very important. He shook his head. Scotty, sit the hell down right now. She pointed at the chair and Scotty numbly obeyed. Juliet sat on the corner of his desk and noted that the cot at the back of the room had been recently slept on and felt pity for the young man. Whatever this is, she shook the roll of paper. It's what caused the last two cleanings. She told him this like it was more than a rapidly forming theory, like it was something she knew. Maybe it was the fear in his eyes that cemented the idea or the need to act strong and sure to help calm him. Scotty, I need to know what it is. Look at me. He did. Do you see this star? She flicked it with her finger, causing a dull ring. He nodded. I'm not your shift foreman anymore, lad. I'm the law. And this is very important. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but you can't get into any trouble for answering my questions. In fact, you're obligated to answer them. He looked up at her with a twinge of hope. He obviously didn't know that she was making this up. Not lying. She would never turn Scotty in for all the silo. But she was pretty sure there was no such thing as immunity, not for anyone. What am I holding? She asked, waving the scroll of a printout. It's a program, he whispered. You mean like a timing circuit? Like... No, for a computer. A programming language. It's a... He looked away. I don't want to say. 
Jules, I just want to go back to mechanical. I want none of this to have happened. The words were like a splash of cold water. Scotty was more than frightened. He was terrified for his life. Juliet got off the desk and crouched beside him, placed her hand on the back of his hand, which rested on his anxiously bouncing knee. What does the program do, she asked. He bit his lip and shook his head. It's okay. We're safe here. Tell me what it does. It's for a display, he finally said. But not for like a readout or an LED or dot matrix. There are algorithms in here I recognize. Anyone would... He paused. 64-bit color, he whispered, staring at her. 64-bit. Why would anyone need that much color? Dumb it down for me, Juliet said. Scotty seemed on the verge of going mad. You've seen it, right? The view up top? She dipped her head. You know where I work. Well, I've seen it too, back before I started eating every meal in here, working my fingers to the bone. He rubbed his hands up through his shaggy, sandy brown hair. This program, Jules, what you've got? It can make something like that wall screen look real. Juliet digested this, then laughed. But wait, isn't that what it does, Scotty? Like, there are sensors out there. They just take the images they see, and then the screen has to display the view, right? I mean, you've got me confused here. She shook the printed scroll of gibberish. Doesn't this just do what I think it does? Put that image on the display? Scotty wrung his hands together. You you wouldn't need anything like this. You're talking about passing an image through. I could write a dozen lines of code to do that. No, this is this is about making images. It's more complex. He grabbed Juliet's arm. Jules, this thing can make brand new views. It can show you anything you like. He sucked his breath and a slice of time hung in the air between them, a pause where hearts did not beat and eyes did not blink. She imagined Holston's wife discovering this. She must have been at least as smart as Scotty. She was the one who came up with the technique that he had used to find this in the first place, right? What would she have done with this discovery? Say something out loud and cause a riot? Tell her husband, the sheriff? What? Juliet could only know what she herself would do in that position if she were almost convinced. She was by nature too curious a person to doubt what she might do. It would gnaw at her like the rattling innards of a sealed machine or the secret workings of an unopened device. She would have to grab a screwdriver and a wrench and have a peek. Jules? She waved him off. Details from Holston's folder flooded back. Notes about Allison, how she suddenly went crazy, almost out of nowhere. Her curiosity must have driven her there. Unless... Unless Holston didn't know? Unless it was all an act? Unless Allison had been shielding her husband from some horror with a mock veil of insanity? But... Would it have taken Holston three years to piece together what she had figured out in a week? Or did he already know, and it just took three years to summon the courage to go after her? Or did Juliet have an advantage he didn't? She had Scotty, and she was, after all, following the breadcrumbs of someone else following more breadcrumbs, a much easier and more obvious trail. Um, the last part strikes me that, you know, as what you were saying recently about Juliet is recreating how much of Holston's investigation. And so she's basically saying the same thing here. But uh, did anything else stand out to you about that? I just love the fact that they're like 64 bit color is like some massive amount of computing power. <laughs> that's like the cutting edge of the silos technical capability. 
And I think actually that's really well reflected in the show. Like the prop designers have clearly read that and worked backwards to, okay, if that's like the limit of processing power, what would the computers look like? And the answer is they'd look like some sort of approximation of what you could get in the 1980s. Yeah. I like the fact that Hugh Howie is that specific. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's, that's a really cool little detail. Yeah. It gets even more specific, but there's spoilers there. Okay. I mean, yeah, I think it's it's interesting, you know, you talk about uh, adapting from one medium to another, in this case, from a book to an audiovisual medium. And, you know, in the book, you can have these descriptions of the specific pixelation and dimensions of, of a screen and uh, about coding and things like that. But when you have like, you know, something that's video and audio based, they just show you like, let's use that medium rather than like talking about these lines of code. Let's actually show you the video. Yeah. Yeah, So I think that was a good adaptation choice. Um, But one thing that worries me is that Danny, one of my two new babies who I would die for from this week, he reminds me a little too much of Scotty. And now I'm afraid for him. Are you afraid for, are you afraid for Danny or Lucas or anyone else? I'm afraid for everybody in the show that isn't Juliet, <laughs> constantly. frankly. Uh, constantly. Given the amount of characters that were killed in the first four episodes, you know, no one is safe in this universe, apart from Juliet, because Rebecca Ferguson is a is a producer on the show. I mean, this um, season she is. Dun, dun, dun. This season she is, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, if, even if Juliet dies, it doesn't mean Rebecca Ferguson can't still be a producer. Well, yeah, technically that's true, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I feel like we're not getting through the finale without another death. That feels like... No. I'd say the favourites in the death sweepstakes at this point are probably... My favourite would still be Dr. Nichols. Okay. I think it would, it would round out his story quite well if he, uh, you know, if he had to make the ultimate sacrifice to save Jules. I think... Um, Patrick Kennedy and IT Hacker Boy are probably at great risk. Um, Not Patrick. If they do anything to Billings, I riot. <laughs> uh, I'm just, I'm just not having that. Yeah, um, I'm obviously, uh, like I said, nine predictions. We'll reveal next week. Um, so yeah, of course, we want to hear what everybody else thought about this episode. Run through some new theories and discuss our own final thoughts. And we're going to do that right after this break. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Now opening the listener feedback channel. Okay, starting on Discord this week, for anyone new to this podcast, we have a silo channel on the Lorehounds Discord server, so you'll find a link in the show notes if you want to join in the conversation there about silo and a whole bunch of other current shows or popular shows that are coming up soon. So... First up, we have John, one of the, you know, the godfathers of the Lorehounds, and he says, I'll pose a theory on the number 18. 18 is the numerical value of Chai in uh, Judaism. Chai is Hebrew for life. 
When religious Jews donate to charity, they often donate in multiples of 18 to signify efforts for life. Some people wear high necklaces. I'm wondering if 18 and the contents of the drive have any reference to this tradition. Any thoughts? Maybe. Yeah, I'm, I'm very intrigued to see if they play into that at all. That would be very interesting and good to know in general. Thank you, John. Yeah. And so another 18 theory, this time from Skip Intro, we got, in the words of Patrick, what the actual fuck, that was an amazing episode. Um, I think the flashing red number 18 key ring is a warning to Bernard from whoever is running all the silos. I still think in AI, hence Bernard appeared a lot more stressed and desperate this episode, knowing his time is running short, backed up by the shadow chat with Sims. So, okay, thoughts, multiple silos, AI overlord, anything resonating with you here? Okay, I'm definitely down with the idea of multiple silos. We've talked about this before. I can certainly see that being a thing. I don't, I mean, there could be an AI overlord, but I've not really seen any evidence to point in that direction. I don't think it would take the story off in a bad direction, but it would take it off in a radically different direction. And I don't think the the series so far has laid the groundwork for that and the series has actually been very very good at planting and payoff um so i don't think it's ai based but i certainly think there could be there could be multiple silos and whatever kind of authority whatever sort of wizard of oz figure whether that be ai or whether that be human behind the behind the curtain i that was how I interpreted that key fob as well. I think that's like their way of their way of communicating to Bernard that we see what's going on. We're worried that you're about to lose control of the situation. Get your people back in line or we'll deal with it. Okay. Okay. So next up we have Mike J. M. McCarthy and he says, this has been such good fun. To Alicia and Luke, thank you so much for your terrific work on the podcast. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. Since we're one episode from the end, I wanted to share a theory as a non-book reader. Uh, so, And then he puts a list of bullet points. So I'll just run through the bullet points. The world outside is toxic, dead. Uh, whatever caused the catastrophe was foreseen long enough in advance to construct multiple silos. The founders were not arrogant enough to think that they could set down one system of laws that would survive for centuries, so each silo has its own version of the pact. Not every silo would prosper, but perhaps one society could last long enough for the Earth to recover from whatever happened. All the other silos have failed. Apparently this version of the pact, weird magnification restrictions and all, was the most successful in keeping everyone alive. Bernard's uh, slash Sims, Simsnard, knows all the above and are willing to go to any lengths to prevent human extinction. Thoughts? Yeah, I would be astonished at this point if we're not dealing with with multiple silos in some configuration. The interesting um, wrinkle in that theory is, do Bernard and Sims know that they are inhabiting the final silo? According to his theory, he says that they, they do. And he okay. says that that's where their desperation comes from. Yeah, I mean, that that would make sense, because when Bernard is describing what they're facing, the word he uses is extinction, not the end of the silo, not not the end of this particular environment, but the end, the end of everything. Mm -hmm. It's a very thought-provoking theory, at the very least, yeah. 
And then uh, Scribe Jack says, I loved that Juliet went to Sim's place. It was the perfect place to hide, and she knew it had a, a terminal she needed, which was just one of those perfect axes of multiple plot lines. Sim's wife is a badass, too, and it seems like she not only knows all of Sim's secrets, but has been his cheerleader this whole time, pushing him toward their goal. I was definitely wrong about Bernard losing nuance with the heel turn. Robin somehow managed to be more sinister and dangerous while also having that earnest, you can call it, insecurity. I thought it was especially interesting that Bernard is now doubting Sim's ability to be his shadow, the way he's reluctant because it might not be right for Sims, his family, or the silo. You almost believe he cares about Sims and his family, while he also implies he'd kill them all, anyone, not just Sims, without a second thought, if Bernard thought it was best for the silo. Um, so yeah, how much mustache was Bernard twirling for you this week? He was twirling a lot of mustache in this episode. <laughs> I mean, I thought that was just a bit of um, Bernard trying to, like, whip Sims on, trying to encourage yeah. um, Sims, because Bernard knows how much Sims wants to be his shadow. And I think that was that was Bernard just sort of, you know, doing a bit of, come on, come on, Sims. You're still in the, you're still in the running, but you've got to pick up the pace. <laughs> yeah, and so Scribe Jack also uh, wonders why Billings burnt the book and um, worries that Billings is going to become that company man that we suspected when the show first started, um, especially after his talk with his wife. But on the other hand, Rebecca Fan says, I think that Billings will become a company man in name only. He'll work for them because he doesn't have a choice. Billings does have something to prove. I love that these characters aren't all one thing. But he's seen something that has changed him profoundly. Keeping that one page will remind him of the lies and maybe provide hope for him and his family. He's terrified that his daughter will get the syndrome. I doubt he'd try to escape the silo, but he can't get rid of that knowledge. And uh, Juliet is doing bad things for good reasons. Obviously, it's not done in the same way, but she's raiding the house uh, as hers was. She is scaring a little kid as she was. Juliet is a good person, but has a lot of gray in her. Also, is it me or was there a bit more Jules from Mechanical and her mannerisms this episode? Uh, finally, I loved how Rebecca played the scene with the George video. And yeah, definitely agree with all of that. And I think that's an interesting contrast between yeah, the complexity of these two characters and how they're sometimes aligned and sometimes at odds. Yeah, well, I will just... I'm not engaging with Billings burning the book because I will bet my boots that he didn't. All right, I hope you're right. I, I hope am, you're I'm right, fairly, I I'm like fairly it. confident that he didn't burn. I don't want. He may not be George's file that he did burn, but he, I'm confident that he, whatever he burned, it wasn't the book. All right. I, I mean, I'd be sad to see that book taken out of circulation, but uh, I don't know. I feel like I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Um, so then we have John Z says Sims and Camille talk of having one goal, one ambition, and we will not lose sight of that. Uh, seems like they mean their son, but what if it's bigger than that? Overthrowing Bernard, freeing the silo. What do you think? Uh, oh, I've just got massive galaxy. Right? <laughs> um, cause yeah, I just took that of keeping our, um, son safe, particularly going back to last episode when we we learn that they've had they've had previous miscarriages yeah. and that, that this was you know that they've suffered pain by that but yeah oh i'm trying to oh that's a good theory I mean, I like we have that. another uh we have another camille theory from rocky zim um they say this episode was pretty good sims and his wife had an interesting moment when she mentioned that they had one goal and then he mentioned that he may not be shadow for bernard after what he did Made me think that Sims and his wife have their own agenda, maybe, and she let Juliet go, so that heightens my suspicions. Could Sims and his wife be flamekeepers? 
And then the two guys helping Juliet with the hard drive are flame keepers. The guy uh, who was helping Juliet with the hard drive knew a lot about computers and how to make the signal come from other rooms. Also wondered if he was the one messing with the cameras when they were blacking out lots going on. Um, yeah, I mean, he knows he works in IT, so that's why he knows so much about computers. Yeah, whether they're flame keepers is a good question. I don't know about Sims Neil, Cam Mims. <laughs> yeah, Cam Mims. What do you think? Um, oh, I've just I've just got this image of like the last like the last but one scene of next episode is uh, uh, Sims putting rat poison in Bernard's whiskey. Yeah. I don't think Sims is some kind of double agent. I don't think he's like playing some massively long game. Yeah, he doesn't seem duplicitous enough. No. And also like does that mean that Sims dad was playing some like massive long game? I mean, how long does this game have to be going? All right, well we we have another theory to add to the pile. So, um Sherry says the end of the last episode resolved itself pretty quickly. LOL. I was pretty sure Jules wasn't going to die, so it's fine. <laughs> It's kind of funny. People were all panicking about it and they're just like, boom, thud, moving on. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Not so much as a twisted ankle. Yeah. Introducing Sim's wife in the penultimate episode, I was instantly intrigued by her. She's as cool and collected as he is. An ex-raider now working in IT. I was very surprised she let Juliet go and with a hard drive, no less. I have a theory their goal might be for Camille to become mayor. Do we know if she replaced Bernard as head of IT? Um, so yeah, Bernard is still head of IT. He's acting now as both mayor pro tem and head of IT, which is not something he can, he can't keep being both, but for now that's the situation. Um, but what do you think? Do you think they're trying to position Camille in, as into a convenient political place? I've got to say, I, I love this feedback because people <laughs> have read way more into that conversation than I did. I don't know. I don't think so it strikes me that it's a little late that if if she was going to play that that much of a role if she was going to be that pivotal going forward this seems a little late in the series Mm. to be introducing her for the first time um i really did just take that one goal being the protection of their son now that doesn't mean that that becoming bernard's shadow is like mutually exclusive to that because, like, the best way of ensuring, like, their, their safety and comfort is to become, you know, the most powerful yeah. figure in the silo. So I don't I don't necessarily think that there is only one way of reading that conversation. I hope they don't go down the road of making her a Lady Macbeth character, mm-hmm. because I just think that I just think that is a bit of a tired um, trope, a tired trope, to uh-huh. be honest. Okay. Um, And Sherry also says, poor Lucas, Juliet really put him in the shit, didn't she? And we find out that Hannah killed herself by jumping over the railing makes the fact they pushed George over the railing that much more traumatic for Juliet. And I think Paul took the shell picture. So it wouldn't make sense to me if he took the shell picture, but I don't know. I don't know. It almost doesn't matter what page he took because every page in that book is equally incriminating in its own way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, whatever it is, it's going to blow people's minds. So I'm looking forward to seeing how it pops up. Like, I hope it's just like he just like slams it on a table in the middle of a meeting or some cinematic crap like that. (laughs) (laughs) 
So next up, White Paper Bag says, I liked this episode. I think it may be because I'm a book reader, but I don't think we got too much new or course changing information this episode. But trying to look at it from a show watcher's perspective, they definitely gave people a lot to analyze. And to be honest, I didn't think Sims was going to be Bernard's shadow candidate. I thought they both saw themselves at the top of their respective roles. I think it would have made more sense to have Bernard feel urgency and show that he really hadn't had a shadow in mind because he can't trust anyone to be as dedicated as he is. But I also get that for TV, they got to dialogue these kind of things out. Camera footage scenes were insanely cool, and I'm happy we got that payoff. And I still had faith in George. Uh, it was a nice little happy moment to see Juliet get her closure to her original arc before the season ends and the next begins. Really curious as to what page Billings saved. I saw one proposition that it was the map overview of which I think would be the most interesting and also loving the addition of Patrick Kennedy's character. Him and Hank are my favorites aside from the other main cast. Um, and then so from Xerxes1 on Reddit, we have favorite thing that happened. The hard drive was finally accessed. Least fave? For such a short episode, it dragged out tiny amounts of new information while teasing outstanding mysteries. George's repeated video, which spent too much time expressing his feelings for Jules. No! No! <laughs> it spent just the right amount of time expressing his feelings, from my opinion. Yeah, it seconded. I saw some people were saying, you know, that like they were just getting stressed about it. It was like, we don't have time for feelings right now. We need answers. We need to know why the water is not a problem. And um, yeah, Lucas seems to have not been much help to the plot. He was passing potential love interest. His interest in tracking the lights in the sky was also noted by Bernard. And Jules noted the constellation in the Georgia Kids Guidebook, but nothing else came of that. I thought he was going to help with the hard drive, but that doesn't seem like a possibility now. It's odd that they spent so much time on this character. And yeah, I would just say, you know, Lucas's story isn't over yet. So let's just see what happens in the finale. Um, yeah, once again, Jules has made several miraculous escapes. <laughs> A few people said this uh, about the swift traveling too. Although I think, I don't know, I think we were in actually a pretty central area of the silo this time. And I, I think actually this time Judicial did do quite a good job of trying to find her. It just happened that she was one step ahead of them. Sometimes you just don't catch who you're looking for. Oh yeah, I think they did a good job this week with going into that like more complicated residential area. You can see that there are a lot of like corners yeah. that someone could get lost in, you know, especially if somebody's apparently blacking out the camera. So I can't wait to find out who's doing that. I like your theory that it's Walker. That makes sense. Um, okay, so Violent Ends says, I wish we got more new info from the hard drive. I'm glad Jules got some closure. Um, now that she has, she can find some other problem to fix. What's on the other side of the tunnel or what's in the tunnel? As a book reader, I'm not going to make any predictions for the final episode. Some questions will be answered, but other more important and interesting questions will be presented, I'm sure. I like the addition of Mrs. Sims and moral complexity of her decision to let Jules go. I was expecting her to take Jules out, but something in the video showed her that Jules is not the threat to the silo that Sims thinks she is. I hope we hear the end of their conversation. Keep giving me more billings. Talk about moral complexity. He's a human contradiction. His wife is totally right. He should get a cozy job back in judicial to avoid the risks of the sheriff job. But he has to find out what Jules knows and what judicial IT shadow government is hiding. Love the pod. Keep up the good work. Um, thank you so much for the kind words. And yeah, excellent points. Any thoughts? It's a little bit too late now for billings to go back to a cushy job in 
judicial. The poor guy is in all the way now. I agree. And it's it's actually more interesting generally, just how like the choices facing all facing all of the main characters are have been slowly narrowing in the um in the last few episodes as it builds towards a climax. Like Sims and Bernard now can't get rid of Juliet while paying any attention to the pact. Right. You know, Billings has somewhat burned his bridges with judicial. Juliet has comprehensively burned her bridges with just about everybody apart from Walker, her father, and Patrick Kennedy, weirdly. Yeah, mechanical. Who thought Patrick Kennedy would be the linchpin of this season? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, okay, going over to Twitter, uh, we got uh, Rant Al Moore at Rant underscore Al Moore. Hi, Brett. Uh, he says, knew she'd live, LOL. Uh, I've come to like Paul a lot. I think he's my favorite character. So apparently he's got a big fan club, Paul. Uh, the syndrome feels like the ultimate red herring of the greater plot. Juliet is such a unique protagonist. I really don't know how I feel about her, but she's intriguing to watch. Her escapability is just phenomenal. And okay, WTF, Paul, why burn the book? Hmm, is Common secretly a good guy? What do you think? Okay, Sims is not secretly a good guy. <laughs> I'd actually be seriously disappointed in the series if it turned out that he was. A few people are feeling that way, or hoping for that, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Like I, like I said a moment ago, I think the, the show has been very good in terms of planting and payoff, and I just don't think it's there at the moment for Sims to be revealed as a secret good guy. Maybe when we get into season two, he yeah. will be, but I, I just don't think there's enough. I, I don't think there is enough there at the moment to make that, to make that turn convincing. Okay. All right. So uh, Stuve at Duve 71 says solid setup for a season finale. Um, he also found Mrs. Sims lack of response to the video uh, suspicious and he says uh, the fact she has probably seen vids or something like it does play into a conversation with Sims in the kitchen about the plan they have. Seems like it's to lead the silo, quotes, uh, who was shutting off the cameras. Uh, and yeah, he posits that it might be part of Mrs. Sims' plan. Actually, I think his wife uh, posited that. And he says, great intro of the IT guy. I bet he'd have a field day on the hard drive. But with Jules showing the cleaning vid, a key secret is bound to get out. Uh, the house seems to be in agreement that Jules is going out to clean next week. And I like Luke's comment that it would be a great cliffhanger to leave the silo on the brink of a riot. Uh, and I haven't even mentioned the mysterious door that George discovered, where it could lead. Phew, next Friday can't come fast enough. Do you think Juliet's going out to clean? And uh, you still think that this season might end on a riot brewing? Okay, I think the season may well end on a riot. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to caveat what I'm about to say. I think Jules will go outside. I think she will leave the silo, but not necessarily to clean. Okay. Because I think I think that there's a possibility, and I wouldn't put it any stronger than that, there's a possibility that the door that George is referring to, like, obviously we've seen inside there before, but I think that there could be a way out through that water, like out into the real world, out into the surface. Okay. Um, so I think, I think Juliet may may pull off the ultimate escape by escaping the silo entirely. Okay. okay. Now, the only problem there is where does she find a hazmat suit? But I'm sure she can bodge one together from from like various materials in Walker's workshop. 
Maybe she's got some more bacon for the dogs in supply. Yeah. Or like a load of heat tape. Just yeah. bundles and bundles of Bernard's heat tape. Oh, well, this, this is a callback to, I mean, I'm not going to be spoilery, but it's for something from For All Mankind. Anyone who knows about bundling yourself up in, in duct tape to go outside, pouring one out for the lost. We, we did manage to get through an entire episode without Bernard mentioning the heat tape. Yeah, true. I feel this is personal <laughs> growth on Bernard's part. All right. Um, so we got Bidushi Das, and uh, she says, I really didn't know what that's what an air quality monitor looks like, huh, Bernard? <laughs> also so glad that Jules got closure. I think Jules will find a way to go down to the digger and open that door that George mentions. I'm really excited to see what she finds. Also curious to know what Mrs. Sims meant when she said not to forget their goals uh, slash target to Rob Sims. Perhaps the welfare of the boy. Do you think Jules might choose to go outside now that she has seen the cleaning video on the hard drive? I think she may choose to do that considering it will be really hard to, to reach the digger and do what George asked her to do. What do you think? Maybe, but like... She wouldn't, even even having seen that video, I don't think she would trust Sims or Bernard enough that they weren't going to sabotage her, like, leaving the silo by, like, putting poison in the suit or something. I don't think Juliet would take going outside, like, the official way as being a safe bet. Yeah. Even given what she thinks she knows about the outside. All right. I guess we'll see. So Abby at S-C-E-G-F-U underscore thoughts after I slept on it and read a myriad theories. Sims and wife seem like a cop couple that are also victims of the system that tramples on every dissent for the greater good, whose actions can be so easily questioned at the first misstep caring for the family in this case, as he does with everyone whose actions he perceives as even mildly threatening or just develops a dislike to for not being good enough. Yes, man, he's pushed Sims aside. He wants to have someone who is afraid enough not to question anything he does. Do you agree with that assessment? No, because I, th- I think Bernard recognizes that he needs to have he needs to have somebody who agrees with his worldview. But if a shadow is going to be worth having, they need to have the intelligence that Bernard talked about. Yeah, I don't think she's saying that they don't need the intelligence, um, but just that it has to be an intelligent yes man. But yeah, but ultimately, if you're a yes man, that's going to, even if you've got the intelligence, if you're not willing to follow through with that, then I just, I, I just think having that intelligence needed for the role and being a yes man are like contradictory. You're never going to find that. Okay. And for last bit of feedback this week, her royal bubbliness at JD8 underscore says, love the hacker character and Patrick, of course, always with the comic relief, especially with all the tragedies. We needed this because come on. Uh, I better see more of them. I'm in love with them already. And just seeing the facial expression of Juliet as it moved from see, I knew it. He was just using me to he did love me and mouthing. I love you back. Oh, my heart. And shout out to Patrick for doing the needful and dragging Hacker Guy away to give her some privacy. How serious was his face while watching (laughs) Hacker Guy? Uh, I could see the sheer embarrassment on Jules' face as she looked at them and uh, hackers just analyzing the video like his life depends on it. Patrick really saved her. <laughs> yeah, I did think that was a really nice touch because, you know, Patrick comes across as cynical and crusty, but, but underneath it, he's a decent guy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's nice to see like how their relationship has evolved from he's like, oh, why are you always coming to my door? Like, you're going to arrest me or what? To now, you know, he he's the guy she goes to for help. So, Luke, any final thoughts on episode nine, The Getaway? Um, Really enjoyed it. 
Really looking forward to next week. Can't wait for the finale. Going to be really surprised if the first scene is a porter bringing Bernard his Tex-Mex um, <laughs> from Applebee's. Okay, that's it for the feedback channel this week. If you'd like your feedback discussed on the next episode breakdown, I'll pin a tweet to my Twitter profile and post on the Silo Series subreddit to collect feedback as soon as the episode goes live. And of course, you can always find me on the Lorehounds Discord. Please get us your feedback by Saturday to be included in next week's recording. Uh, next week's title promises big things outside. What are you expecting from that title? Well, I'm expecting somebody to go outside. <laughs> but will it be one person? Several people? And how will they get outside? Yeah, good questions. Uh, they keep the description vague. They say Juliet's fate seems sealed when certain truths come finally to light. Uh, what fate do you think seems sealed? And, and what truths are you hoping come to light? To quote David Tennant's uh, Tenth Doctor, that is enigmatic. That is textbook enigmatic. Um, <laughs> I'm assuming Jules and probably other people go outside, but whether they do that of their own volition, I don't know. And what happens next? Uh, I have no idea, but we're going outside. All right. Well, like I said, I, I made some specific book reader predictions and uh, I will review whatever is safe to review next week and see how well I did. Um, until then, there are other places you can find us. For example, Woolshift Dust is a member of the Lorehounds Network, publishers of this podcast, a channel full of content just like this, talking about other books and shows and even games and films. Uh, watch out for episodes and everything from the Star Wars films to One Piece to right now going on our weekly coverage of Secret Invasion, the new Marvel TV show, uh, which started this past week on Disney Plus, co-hosted by yours truly. As for Woolshift Dust, Luke and I will be back around the same time next week to discuss episode 10 outside. Luke, until then, where can people get in touch? They can get in touch with me on Twitter at Luke Midup. And also, if you want my unfiltered first impression, come along to the Discord Friday afternoons, UK time. And you can find me also in the Discord, of course, and on Twitter at AliciaCV. You'll find both those handles written out in the show notes. And we'll see you next week on Wool Shift Dust, found on hard drives numbered 18 and up to 9 serial numbers. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.